I'm Megan, an SLP in Missoula, Montana, and this is the Therapy Insights Podcast, where we dive into what it means to be a clinician, not only in the sense of swallowing and walking and talking and dressing and bathing, but also in the sense of connecting with people who are facing some of the most extraordinary challenges of their lives. In medicine and in society, we fail to recognize that just fixing problems and making them go away is not the only way we can provide help. Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. As Ram Dass said, when all is said and done, we're really just all walking each other home. Today, we're talking with Chris Clasby. Chris is a lifelong Montanan living in Missoula where he works as a community and licensed clinical social worker. He attended Helena High School one year at Carroll College and finished at the University of Montana in Missoula. Before graduate school, Chris taught high school English and history for one year and then earned an MSW and later became licensed as a social worker. Outdoor pursuits have always been Chris's passion, and he enjoyed wrestling and competed in rodeo from a young age through high school. One month after graduating high school in 1990, Chris broke his neck in a car accident returning from a rodeo in Nevada and became a complete C4 quadriplegic with no arm or hand function. He went to Craig Hospital in Englewood, Colorado, which had a lasting impact on his life. Above all, the interactions with staff and fellow patients experiencing similar challenges instilled Chris with a belief in a possibility and focus on life. Our conversation touches on what it means to be human, what it means to suffer, and the value of taking risks in order to know what's possible. So, um, I'm, my, my primary job at Summit is as a community social worker and um, Summit's an independent living center. There's over 400 of them in the country and we're federally mandated to provide five core services and one of those services is called peer advocacy or peer support and so my primary role is the coordinator of that program for Summit. So I have uh, like 10 people who, who have various types of disabilities and have lived, you know, a good life and live a good life. And so um, they've applied and gone through this training to be able to help other people, consumers, of Summit um, accomplish specific goals. Yeah, I think the first time I met you was when you came to Village to see a patient. And I just remember that feeling of like, they that person had gotten to our facility, we had gone through some rehabilitation program, and then when you got there, that was the first time where they really saw and realized what could happen beyond going through that rehab program and that they could have a life beyond what had just happened to them. Right. And that's so powerful. <laughs> right. And the right. work you guys do is incredible. So Y'all thanks. I'm I, I think it's definitely worthwhile and yeah. 
Um, and I didn't realize, so these are federally mandated programs across the right. country. So everyone across the U.S. has access to places like this. Right, yep. And uh, not all of not every center does things the same. I mean, there's the federal mandates, but um, there's nuances in how the services can be provided. That's, you know, um, and then certainly there's limitations by where a person lives. I mean, for example, someone who lives in the Yak in far northwestern Mont Montana is somewhat limited. We do have, you know, we cover that region, some it does, um, and we have an office. We have several satellite offices, um, but obviously just geogra geographical location makes it difficult to provide the services in some places. Yeah, for sure, especially places like Montana. Right. A lot of rural yeah. areas. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your story. Oh, and I guess wait. Oh, yeah. What my the other part of my job here at Summit is that um, I am a, a licensed clinical social worker, and so um, we're in the process now of developing an internal system through which. I can see people for counseling here, and then um, Summit will be able to bill for that service under my provider identity. And so for that part of my job, Summit and I have negotiated um, a different pay scale. So, but it, 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 it's for me, it's a safe way to do that. You know, it's a lot less risky than leaving my job and just hanging that shingle and hoping I find people. And, right. You know, then worrying about bailing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So. So you talk about your time at Craig. Yes. And I thought it was fascinating when I was listening to the Meat Eater podcast, you were there for two months? No. Is that right? I was there for about uh, a little over four months. Four months. But how long from from when you got to Craig to when you woke up and realized you were there, how long had it been? Uh, probably. So uh, when I was first injured, I... Uh, I, it was, I, w I was in a car accident close to Butte, Montana, so I ended up in a hospital there. And I was in that hospital for, I don't know, five weeks or something, and then went to Craig. And how did you get to Craig from Butte? Uh, like, was there somebody who said, you've got to go to Craig and like yeah. organized it with your family? Yeah, you know, my parents, I was unconscious. And so I obviously, I mean, I was 18, so I would have been capable of making some decisions. But since I was unconscious, I was obviously un, unable to. So my parents 
were trying to decide where to go, where to send me, and they were considering Harborview in Seattle and looking at some other rehab. There's a big one in Georgia called Shepherd. Um, Craig was one. Salt Lake City was one. And so they kind of narrowed it down to Seattle or Denver, Craig Hospital in Denver. And my mom was talking to a doctor at Harborview in Seattle. And and at in the, as they were talking, he told my mom that uh, and he actually had a son that was, I think at the time, 17. And it was something like, he told my mom that if his son was injured, like I was, he would send his son to Craig. And that's a doctor that works at Harborview. So that's pretty convincing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how I ended up there. Oh my gosh. Okay, so then let's work backwards from there and talk about the accident. And okay. people can't see you right now, but you're sitting in a wheelchair. So how yeah. did you get there? Uh, you know, when I was when I was in high school, I rodeoed, and so my friend and I had qualified for this rodeo in Nevada at the end of our right after we graduated high school. So he and I traveled to Den to Fallon, Nevada, for this rodeo. And we were on our way home, and um, nobody knows exactly what happened, but we had a car accident. And nobody knows even who was driving. Um, and, and you were with your friend Danny? Yeah, yeah. And we were both ejected out the rear window of the vehicle, and um, uh, Danny ended up dying. And... Uh, so I hit my head pretty hard and was knocked out and broke my neck at uh, pretty much C, C4, the fourth vertebrae down from my skull. So I had a spinal cord injury and I'm quadriplegic. I can't feel or move anything below my collarbones, basically, other than pain in my abdomen, um, which is just, you know, messed up nerves. Mm -hmm. So. So you get taken to the hospital in Butte, and then you're there for a while, and then you go to Craig. Yeah. And you wake up. <laughs> yeah. And what was that experience like? Oh, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, when I say I was unconscious, I so I was unconscious, you know, eyes closed and everything, for quite a while. Um, but then I started to, you know, I appeared to be conscious. I would have my eyes open and be talking, but like the lights were on, but nobody was home. You know, I mean, I just, I, I was unconscious. And so, uh, the day that I realized what was going on, I had woken up that morning 
my dad was in Denver, and so he had come up to the hospital, and in, in the backyard of, kind of a courtyard of Craig Hospital, there's a, like a, uh, uh, small pond, kind of, you know, it's kind of man-made, it's got concrete sides, and in the center of it, there's a, um, fountain that spews water, and anyway, I guess I, I had been out in that backyard, and I would, I kept calling that pond the bird bath, and so apparently that morning that I woke up, uh, my dad came up to the hospital to see me, and, you know, I was, they transferred me from bed into a, a wheelchair, but it was like a, you know, big hospital wheelchair, and I was, you know, laid back and everything. And I, I was saying that I wanted to go out to the bird bath, so my dad was pushing me out there in this wheelchair. So when I first realized what was going on, to me it was like, you know, I had closed my eyes when I got in an accident, and at that moment it was like first opening my eyes, and I noticed that I was outside and I could see buildings around me. And I was looking at the buildings and the trees and stuff, and nothing was looked familiar at all. So I didn't know where I was. And then, you know, it was, it was kind of an awkward uh, moment, I guess, because then I looked up and I could see my dad, his face above me, you know, because obviously he was pushing me in the wheelchair. So then I, you know, I just looked around and I said, um, where are we? And my dad said, we're out by the bird bath, you know, because of the pond. <laughs> and I was like, um, no, what is this place? What are these buildings and stuff? And so, and, and I had asked the question before, where am I and stuff, but I just, you know, I didn't remember having asked that or what the answer was. So anyway, I'm like, where are we? And he said, uh, you're at Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado. And I was, I said, um, why? And he said, uh, well, you and Danny were in a car accident and we had to bring you here. And I said, when? And, and he said, July 9th. You know, because that was the day I got to mm -hmm. And so then I was like, I thought it was strange that he set a date rather than saying like yesterday or whatever, Thursday. And so he said, you and Dan got a wreck on your way back from Nevada. And I said, when? And he said, July 9th. I said, what's today? And he said, September 2nd. And, you know, I, I did the math real quick. <laughs> and, you know, I was just like in disbelief. And so then I was like, I was like, why have I been, why have I been here so long? And 
he said, you know, and they told me that I broke my neck and that I'm a quadriplegic. And so... Do you think there was sort of a disassociation with your body? Like... Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like, you hear people talking about, like, you know, like, those near-death experiences where uh, they're kind of observing themselves from kind of afar. That's kind of what it was like. It was just kind of the whole thing was, I, I don't know what term to say other than surreal, you know. Even now, looking back on it um, and having gone through that experience, it's, it's hard for me to believe, actually, that I had that experience, you know. It's just kind of crazy. The Therapy Insights Podcast is supported by Therapy Fix. Every month, a team of licensed and practicing clinicians work together across the country to comb through the latest research and create engaging, expertly designed handouts, interventions, and resources. Hi, my name is Elizabeth, and I live in Pensacola, Florida. I'm an SLP, and I subscribe to Therapy Fix because I love getting new materials every month that keep my practice current and evidence-based. One of my favorite things I received in a therapy fix was the wheelchair sequencing cards because it's functional and I love the carryover I see with my patients in PT and OT. Learn more and subscribe at therapyinsights.com. So talk about your rehab experience at Craig. So, uh... Craig's grown a lot, but at the time, Craig was uh, a 45-bed inpatient uh, spinal cord. There, there's a spinal cord injury floor and a head injury floor. And so I was on the third floor, which is the spinal cord floor. And so there were 45 people there with various levels of spinal cord injury and you know I was at the uh, the more extreme end of, of injury but they ranged and the injuries ranged from you know I remember I had a roommate when I was first there named Danny Lewis who I believe was 19 so he was a year older than me and had injured his spinal cord in a motorcycle accident. And his level of injury was considered C0, where he actually had some brainstem uh, damage. Mm -hmm. It didn't affect him cognitively whatsoever, but his only physical function was uh, control of his eyeballs right. and eyebrows. And so he was on a feeding tube and on a ventilator. And I was on a ventilator initially, but I had weaned off of it. And so um, there were people with that level of injury. And then 
the least significant injury. I remember a guy named, I think his name was Oscar, and he was a patient at Craig, and he walked in carrying his own bags and checked himself in. Um, his injury caused, like, um, he had no endurance and stuff, um, and he had some nerve dysfunction, but, yeah, and everything in between. And, and I think that was the significant part about my experience, was that there was continually someone that was just better off than you, and kind of set a target for what you wanted what you wanted to accomplish next and what you could work toward. And at the same time, you were just better off than somebody else. And so it 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 was pretty interesting because you always had a goal on something that you were working toward. Yeah, and and when you're in that setting going through that kind of emotional journey with those people and seeing the same people day in and day out um, you know it, it's it's pretty impactful you know and and I think the people that work there you know they care about their job they care about the people that they work with and in some way they are also going through that journey because I mean just vicariously they're they're experiencing what each patient experiences and and maybe all rehabs are like that I don't know but so my experience there was very good and I actually found it hard to leave Craig when I was discharged. Now, what was I, the discharge planning process like? like? Um, well, in my case, um, it ended up, I, uh, in, in my case, it was a little hurried. I think because I, well, two things. Um, if, if a person is nearing discharge close to a, like a significant holiday, I think Craig generally tries to get people, they, you know, like I was nearing discharge uh, in December. And, and I think they wanted, for my sake, to get me out of there before Christmas Day, um, and and also I was uh, I was improving more rapidly than they had anticipated, mm -hmm. which was good, um, and so things were kind of hurried, and, and so like for example when I was just discharged, I didn't even have a power wheelchair. I in fact I didn't have any wheelchair. I borrowed a manual wheelchair from Craig to come home in. Wow. And so I couldn't move myself. Um, 
and 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 I think that was partially my fault because I had postponed ordering ordering a chair. You know, they have m multiple chairs that a person can trial in the hospital setting and then make a decision mm -hmm. about what they want. And I was totally convinced that um, I was going to be driving my wheelchair with a joystick when I came home. So I did not want to even drive a sip and puff wheelchair. Right. Or the other option is a, they call it a head array, which a person controls by moving their head around. Or with a chin joystick, mm -hmm. chin drive. And I didn't want to do any of those things. I just, I only wanted to drive it with a hand joystick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which I realize now in retrospect that obviously the driving mode, the method of driving didn't, I mean it can be changed. So oh, I should sure. have, <laughs> so I should have ordered a chair earlier, but. Yeah, you were focused on the function that you wanted to. Right, exactly. Um, so anyway, um, and, and they tried to prepare me as much as possible. Um, I, I was going to return to, to live at my dad's house. And this, so he lived in Helena? Yes. Okay. And he had, uh, a split level entry home, so it was totally inaccessible. Right. And the bedrooms, the basement was unfinished. Uh, the main floor of the house, which was the upstairs, um, you know, I had to, I had to find a way to get in uh -huh. the, to the house. So this is interesting, like one thing that I struggle with is having, like providing advice or providing perspective for people and then being met with that resistance. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't want a wheelchair like that. I want a wheelchair like this. Or, like, I'm, I want to go to this house and I don't want to face the reality that I can't get up and down. Like, yeah. what advice do you have for clinicians who are, like, how do you have that conversation? How do you provide that perspective and, and mitigate some of those things without getting that resistance or... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I think just making people aware, I think it's important to allow people to obviously make, make, to have choices and to make decisions, but to do so with full information. So I think just simply, even if it seems obvious, um, you know, pointing out some of the concerns, like, okay, well, if you don't order a wheelchair soon, um, you know, etc., mm -hmm. etc., et um, I think pointing that out, making people aware so that they have all the information. And then they can make their own yes. decision. Yeah. Everything was so new to me, you know, and I think by the time I had 
I was discharged from grade. I'd kind of gotten gotten used to, or you know, uh, used to being in a hospital hallway in a wheelchair and having um, a, a staff working with me and stuff. But but I really had no clue what it was going to be like when I was discharged, you know, and when I was at home and trying to find personal caregivers, for example, and, you know, schedule them and have regular, you know, nursing visits and things like that. I really, I mean, I... And I don't think that it's possible to really prepare for that. Right. I don't. And I don't know if there's anything we can do to make it better, do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think, and maybe it's because of what I do for a job, mm -hmm. but I do think one thing that can be of help is to visit with people who are in similar situations and um, get from them what their experience is, you know. And that would be part of the peer advocacy right. component yeah. of these programs. Yeah, and that's, that's the basis, really, of that program, is that um, people who have had an experience with disability and you know, have learned from it, they're able to share that information with somebody who's newly going, mm -hmm. going through what they already yeah. went through. And they can do it in a way that nobody else can. Right. In some situations, you can't find help, or, or the people that can typically help you with other aspects of life cannot help you as much as someone who's had the same experience. Absolutely. Yeah. What what three pieces of advice would you um, give to rehabilitation therapists working with people who are going through these enormously life-changing experiences and maybe, you know, those therapists don't know what it's like to be in those shoes and to have that experience, but they're spending every day with them. Um, I would say, first of all, to allow someone to to experience whatever emotions they are. I mean, allow people to fully experience their emotions. Um, you know, there, there's, for example, um, I think there's a lot of benefit to someone feeling depressed, for example. I mean, there's, there's benefit in that. That person's gonna gain from experiencing that depression. And I'm not talking about, you know, long-term chronic depression, but I'm talking about, 
um, you know, just, uh, I guess, I guess the, the sadness that comes with any traumatic life change, I think that that's a value, a valuable emotion. And so don't numb it, you know, allow the person to, I think that's important. Uh, I think secondly, um, to encourage the patient uh, to fail, you know, to encourage the person to take chances, to do whatever they can, whatever they can do. Um, even if, even if ultimately they're gonna fail, mm -hmm. I think there's value in that. I I think if we shelter people or limit them too much, um, it has long-term negative effects because um, because the person I think then learns to be unwilling to take chances mm -hmm. and and they might be limited in doing great things in the future that they might not otherwise do if if they're too limited right and that's that's the struggle in these facilities where safety is often the number yeah. one priority and especially with skilled nursing facilities where we have state regulations and surveyors and any kind of fall or risk is highly frowned upon. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I know a woman um, named Janie uh, who lives in Iowa and has a spinal cord injury. And I actually met her uh, when I had a, um, I had gone back to Craig Hospital for a reevaluation, and and I befriended her brother who was there visiting, and and I've been long term friends with him, um, like seventeen years or, or longer. But anyway, Janie, um, Janie has a lower level of spinal cord injury than I do, and can use her hand, drives her chair with her hand and, and stuff, but um, because of her fear, she chooses to live in a skilled nursing facility. So she lives in a nursing home because she's so scared uh, of being alone. She, you know, Yeah, she just, um, it, it, and I think it's too bad because I think she's limited in what she can do. How do we, how do we do that? How do we? Like in her situation or in any situation, how do we encourage or inspire that independence and that taking that risk? I think from day one, do it. 
if we can do everything we can do to encourage a, a, a person to, to try things. Um, I think with, you know, from the very first day, if a person does try some things and once they've seen or accomplished some things, I think then that leads to trying other new things. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how we get the first one started other than maybe through therapy, uh, you know, encouraging people to do things and then, you know, as they start to enjoy successes of one kind or another, I think they naturally then would learn to, to, to try more new things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like I like the phrase dignity of risk, and I think that's you know that applies here because I I think I think we all should be afforded the dignity of risk, the ability that. the ability to try things, even if ultimately we fail. Um, I mean, that's what being human is all about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like that, the dignity of risk. Yeah. And, I, and I, I'm not sure how we can instill that in anyone, disability or not. Right. But I guess if we can just create an environment in which trying is encouraged. Um, I, I think it can help facilitate that process. Absolutely. Uh, okay, I'm going to read this really long quote because it's one of my favorites by Philip Yancey, I think he was talking, but then he quotes a theologian in here. But he says, I sometimes dream of producing my own line of get well cards. I already have an idea for the first one. The cover would have huge letters, perhaps with fireworks in the background, spelling out congratulations inside this message to the 98 trillion cells in your body that are still working smoothly and efficiently. I would look for ways to communicate the message that a sick person is not a sick person, but rather a person of worth and value who happens to have some bodily parts that are not functioning well. Perhaps the exercise of writing a series of cards like that would help me fight my own tendency of mentally labeling individuals as sick and disabled, thus complicating their battle against helplessness. In an address to German deaconesses involved with disabled people, theologian Jürgen Moltmann attacked the modern distinction that tends to distance healthy people from the handicapped or disabled. In reality, there is no such thing as a non-handicapped life, he said. Only the idea of health set up by a society of the capable condemns a certain group of people to be called handicapped. Our society arbitrarily defines health as the capacity for work and the capacity for enjoyment, 
But true health is something quite different. True health is the strength to live, the strength to suffer, and the strength to die. Health is not a condition of my body. It is the power of my soul to cope with the varying condition of that body. And how would you say that your soul has coped with the varying condition of your body? I think it's an ongoing process. It's not, there's, there's really, I mean certainly there was a, a beginning um, which was, you know, when my injury occurred. But I don't think there's an end. I think it's an ongoing process. It's a journey every, every day I'm learning how to uh, hopefully better cope with the fact that I do have a disability and to uh, I guess emotionally um, respond appropriately I guess in what I consider appropriately. I mean, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. Uh, but but I think, I wouldn't say I'm there yet, you know. I would say um, that I'm still learning from the experience and, um, and I don't, I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll ever end. I trust that everything happens for a reason, even if we are not wise enough to see it, is something that Oprah Winfrey says all the time. Do you agree with this quote, and why or why not? Yes, I do. I do, I do agree with that. And I think the reason I do agree with that is that it's been part of my own coping strategy, you know. I'm afraid that if I didn't believe things happened for a reason, I would struggle more with my physical disability. Um, yeah, I think it's easier for other people to look at situations and see that. Like, it's easy for me to look at your situation and be like, look at all of the amazing gifts and perspective that you're bringing to so many people with what you've been through. But it's different when you're the person right. <laughs> living with the reality. And, like, why did this happen? And right. What is and the meaning behind all of this? Right, and I don't think I'll ever stop right. answering that question. Right. I mean, not answering it, but asking that question, you know. And... And maybe someday I'll find out what, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like, I don't, I don't feel like there's a point that in my life at which I have said, oh, that's why, right. <laughs> you know. I mean, there's things that have happened in my life that have made me feel like, you know, that's, possibly, I mean, that could partially right. explain it. 
I was in a car accident when I was 15, and I was the only survivor, and my brother, Michael, and my friend Courtney died. And it's the same thing where it's like, I see see moments of like, okay, I have this perspective, or I have this understanding, or this deeper experience in life, but then the the question's not really answered with that. It's still like, okay, but why? Why did this happen? Right, exactly. No, there's no, there's no sense to it sometimes. Right. Yeah, and that, you know, there's that book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? You know, I don't think that'll ever st- stop being asked. Right. Yeah, or this belief or sense that, like, if I'm a good person and if I do everything right, Nothing bad will ever happen to me. Right. And then that adds to the, going back to the schema ideas, like somebody who is around someone who has had something very traumatic happen to them, there can be a disconnect because people don't want to acknowledge that that could happen to them. Right. That we're all fragile and we're all at risk anytime. Right. Anything happening is like a horrifying thought. (laughs) Right. So we just want to step back and disengage. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think that uh, possibly explains why people have difficulty with disability because it's exposure of their own vulnerability. Absolutely. And I think that can explain why you know, for example, you know, when I had my injury and then returned home from the hospital and I did have some friends that couldn't deal with it. Um, For the most part, people were great, Um, but there were some people who just couldn't deal with it. And I understand that. Yeah. Totally. All right, what's your favorite book? Uh, There's a a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. It was written by Victor Frankl, and that's by far my favorite book. Yeah, I haven't read that in a long time. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. He was the the gentleman who survived the Holocaust. Right. He was a, a psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah, and he was in a concentration camp, and he he recognized that he needed to have a purpose in life and his purpose was he was writing a manuscript and um, anyway he just kind of continued that work in the concentration camp recognizing he was looking at aside from you know being sent to a gas chamber what allowed one man to live through the experience and actually flourish when another man going through the same experience actually died. Mm-hmm. What what made the difference? And he believed it's finding meaning and so developed. And so it, the first half of his book is about his experience in the content concentration camp. The second half of the book is 
the development of logotherapy, which is about helping people find meaning in their suffering, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which was, do things happen for a reason? Um, yeah, and I, and I just think that's a fascinating book. I've read it multiple times. This has been a conversation with Chris Glasby, licensed clinical social worker and peer advocacy coordinator in Missoula, Montana. And I just want to thank Chris for taking the time to do this interview with me and also for everything that he does for our community here in Missoula. And one thing that I have been grateful to learn from Chris and that I've taken away from this conversation is the fact that these independent living centers are spread out across the United States and these are federally mandated programs. So anybody in the United States has access to a program like this. And especially if you're working on helping to bridge the gap between the, the transitions of care. So if somebody's leaving an acute care setting and going to a rehab hospital or a skilled nursing facility or maybe going home, those transitions can always be really challenging and stressful. And this is the perfect resource. Um, and the people that are at these independent living centers can help tremendously make that transition a lot easier. So if you're interested in finding out more about the resources that are in your area, you can visit the Administration for Community Living's website, and that's acl.gov. This podcast is produced by Megan Berg at Therapy Insights, and if you would like to learn more about what we do, uh, you can visit therapyinsights.com where you can explore our ever-growing library of handouts and materials that we create to help clinicians save time and change lives. And just a quick shout out to the quotes that were used at the beginning of this podcast. The first one is from Atul Gawande, who is the author of Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. And that was a talk that he gave at the Talks at Google series, and that's available on YouTube. The second quote is from Brene Brown from a short segment that she produced on empathy. And the last quote is from Anne Lamott's TED Talk titled 12 Truths I Learned from Life and Writing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.